So there was a man in our first church in North Carolina who would tell me the same joke almost monthly. It went like this. He'd greet me in the hallway and shake my hand, look me right in the eyes. He'd say, Brother Paul, are you preaching against sin this morning? And I would usually say, well, I'm not exactly addressing sin. I'm talking about marriage or the family or faith or prayer or whatever, which always set him up for his next question. He would say, if you're not preaching against sin, does that mean you're for it? And he'd chuckle to himself and he'd walk off until next month and we'd do it all over again. Well, if he were in the room this morning, I'd be able to say, yes, I am preaching against sin today. In fact, I'll be preaching against sin for a couple of weeks in a row. Now, granted, that would probably ruin his joke, and it might dampen the enthusiasm of those of you in the room right now. Um, and I understand that. It is far more enjoyable for me to preach, and I have to believe it's going to be more encouraging for you to hear messages about God's blessing and God's provision and God's abundance and what it is that God loves to do in a person's life. And I get that. I, I really do. But I also know it is important for Christians to not only hear, but to also heed the full counsel of God's word. Whether we like it or not, sin is all over the place in the word of God, and it needs to be addressed. So in our Issues of the Heart series, we're actually doing almost a mini-series in the middle of a series, and I'm going to spend several weeks addressing what has been referred to as respectable sins. That is a topic that was coined by Jerry Bridges back in 2007 in a book that he released, and he used that phrase in order to describe behaviors that Christians regard as acceptable, even though the Bible clearly says they're sinful. These types of sins are so prevalent within our culture that many times we just get used to them. We ignore them. We don't think they're that big of an issue. We tolerate them. We overlook them. And for some situations, we get so comfortable with the idea that we even try to dress up a sin in order to make it sound like it's a virtue. He gave a number of those in his book. For example, pride. Pride is clearly considered a sin in Scripture. And yet sometimes people say it's just having a healthy self-image or maybe anger. You do know it's always righteous anger if you do it, and it's sinful if somebody else does it. Worry. We say, I'm just concerned. Gossip. I'm telling the truth because nobody else is willing to speak up. Idleness. I'm just waiting on the Lord. Here's one, worldliness. I'm becoming all things to all people. Have you ever noticed how we can spiritually spin a lot of the same words that are found in Scripture, and we can, in many ways, try to make them seem like a virtue? He goes on in that list to give others, like impatience or covetousness or jealousy or discontentment. Respectable sins are not the types of sins that are going to make the headlines. It's not like murder or rape or robbery. Respectable sins are those that they move under the surface. It's at a heart level. It's usually between that person and God. Many times, only the individual and God might even know that that sin exists. And therein lies the problem. 
hidden private sin is easily concealed behind our church mask. It's easy for people to exist in a state of hidden, respectable, and I use, I, you know what I mean by that term, I hate the term, but respectable sins. It's easy for us to do that. The prevalence of these sins within culture allows us to quickly excuse them if they're ever detected in our life. We say things quickly like, that person's just having a bad day, or it's a personality quirk, or if you were going through what they were going through, you would understand, or everybody deals with that. We're very quick to excuse this group of sins. Here's my observation after about 28 years of being a believer and 24 years of being a pastor. Generally speaking, churches and individual Christians focus on outward actions far before we focus on inward transformation. We address the stuff everyone sees. Bad tempers, foul language, promiscuous living, substance abuse. We're going to address those types of things. We deal with those things first. And once we clean up the outside of our life to the point that we don't feel awkward and embarrassed around other Christians, we often take our foot off the gas pedal of repentance and we just start to coast. It's not always the case, but it happens a lot. When you're dealing with these bigger sins that we often look at and say, that's bad, that's sinful, that'll mess people up. There's reasons why, incentives why, people deal with those first. You don't want to be the only person showing up at Bible study with the smell of weed still in your hair. That can be embarrassing. You drop a couple of curse words around some Christians and watch their eyes pop out of their head, and you're like, I don't need to do that again. So it's almost like when you begin to recognize what's right and wrong and good and acceptable, it's easy to see the things that Christians are going to get offended with. So what do we do? We address those particular things first. And quite honestly, that's often what is addressed within the church. Did you know there is a very clear message happening in most churches? Here's the messaging week after week after week. Don't do X, Y, and Z, usually outward sins, and start doing A, B, and C, some type of respectable Christian behavior. That's the messaging that people hear week after week. So when incentive is being made to stop the outward things and encouragement is being given to start the religious things like Bible reading and church attendance and serving or giving, there can be the appearance of a dramatic change in a person's life. It appears as though somebody has gone from a public hellion to a respectable Christian, sometimes in a matter of months, maybe a year or two. Listen. And that person can live in that exact state for the rest of their Christian journey. 30 years, 50 years, 70 years or more. And never know that there's something bigger God's calling them to. They act as though this is it. And that's, 
that's hard for us to say, but there is a formula. There is a formula. We might not have ever put it to words, but I guarantee you're going to recognize it. There is a formula for looking like a good Christian. Here it is. Avoid huge public sins plus do good religious things equals looking like a good Christian. You can work that formula for the rest of your life. And you will rarely be challenged in that. But did you know that is not what is described in the New Testament? In fact, if you read the teachings of Jesus, that exact formula is what he called out of the religious leaders back over in Matthew 23. Listen to his words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus doesn't seem okay with outward conformity that is devoid of inward purity. And it's not that he is not okay with that because he's mean or he's being judgmental or he just has had a bad day. The issue is Jesus understands when people live the religious formulas, it does not allow them to experience deep intimacy with God. They do not experience the renovation of the heart that God desires for them to experience. They're resigned to this hollow Christian experience that doesn't want nor need the power of God in order to exist. It forfeits the potential of what God desires to do in and through that person. I'm burdened about these things for a number of reasons. And let, let me just say, these are my reasons. You don't have to agree with them. That's okay. I, I'm just sharing. Th these are some of my reasons as to why this burdens me. It's just part of my observations from being a pastor for a number of years and trying to help people walk through different issues in their life. I'm burdened first because the American church culture has made it acceptable for immature Christians to never grow up. I don't know if you just heard what I said, but if you weren't mad before you came, that should probably give you incentive. The American church culture has made it acceptable for immature Christians to never grow up. It's almost like we're telling Churches, believers, as long as you don't do something in public that embarrasses the church, as long as you show up occasionally, as long as you give something along the way, we're okay with that. As though that's the standard somehow. And yet I don't see that supported in the New Testament. Does anybody remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira out of Acts 5? Does anybody remember the Apostle Paul calling out sinful behavior and saying, I'm turning that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord? It doesn't seem as though that model fits with a New Testament paradigm. I'm concerned because the American church culture is producing more unintended Pharisees than devoted disciples. Morality training, self-help, and religious knowledge are taught and emphasized far more than intimacy with God, obedience to his word, and spirit-led living. We know more than we live. 
we live less than we should. We're quick to condemn the actions of others, the heart of others, what we perceive their motivations to be, and yet we are not nearly as quick to address and repent of the personal sin that's in our life. I don't know if you know it or not, but that type of living is eerily similar to first century Phariseeism. I'm concerned because the American church culture has elevated average as normal instead of pointing to scripture as the standard. Here's what I mean by that. The average temperature of a person in a hospital may be 102.5, but average is not normal. The average days of sobriety in an AA group might be 21, but average is not normal. As the church has emphasized outward actions over personal inward heart-level transformation, We've now accepted average Christian living as normal Christian living. We don't get worried about our own sins because everyone around us looks like us. But the question is, do any of us look like him? Do we look like our Savior? Other people around us is not the standard. The standard here is do we look like Jesus? Is our heart and our life being transformed into the character of Christ? The New Testament does not portray abnormal Christian living. It sets the standard for what Christian living should look like. And too often we look in the New Testament and we're like, that looks abnormal. It's not that it's abnormal. It's that we've accepted average now as normal. Now, why would I share any of that? Because if we're going to focus and pray and ask God to make this into a New Testament church, if we're going to beg God and say, would you send revival? And if you do start here, start with me. If we're going to be serious about maturing believers and discipling believers and being upset with the perpetual state of Christian immaturity, we have to deal with the issues of the heart. We have to go beyond outward appearance and say, God, do the deep work on the inside. We have to be ruthless with personal sin. We have to see sin as God sees it. You see, no one else may know the depth of our pride. No one else may understand the selfishness of our heart. No one else around us might know our struggles with worry or ingratitude or jealousy or envy. But even if other people don't see it, and even if the world says it's not that big of a deal, and even if the church has classified it as a respectable sin, it doesn't make it right. So today, we are going to bring three of these types of sins into the light. Each of these are interconnected, and each is unbelievably destructive. I'm speaking this morning on envy, jealousy, and covetousness. So I'm going to read three texts. They are in your notes. They're also going to be on the screens. I'm going to read the text, going to pray, and we're going to dig in. Each of these texts, you will notice, will have a word, either jealousy or envy involved or the covetous tendencies that we're going to describe today. Here's the first. is James 3.16. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Galatians 5, 19 through the first part of 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Let's pray. God, by your spirit, would you guide us into truth today? Lord, help us to see exactly what it is that you're pinpointing in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I chose these three texts for a couple of reasons. These are not in your notes, but I just want you to think how I'm trying to approach this particular topic. I shared these three texts because first, I wanted you to see that sin never travels alone. James 3 gives a glimpse of that. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, and here it is, and every evil thing. Somebody might look and say, yes, I deal with jealousy, but it's not that bad. It's not that big. Yes, it's, it's an issue, but I've got it under control. Did you see the end of that verse? Where jealousy exists, it says there is disorder in every evil thing. When jealousy is in the picture, there is a host of other evil pieces that come with it. I picked these texts because I also wanted you to see where our help comes from and why it is we need to deal with sin ruthlessly. That's our Romans text. Look at the second half of that text. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust." Our help in dealing with sin in general, not only these, but sin as a whole, comes from putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that phrase speaks of becoming more like him, that we receive by faith all that he is, all that he desires, all that he wishes to live through us. Believers have been rooted in Christ we are being built up in him, found over in Colossians 2.7. And as we are walking with him, you're going to find that the old fleshly garments, the habits, the tendencies, the traits that we developed under a sin nature are being taken off. And at the same time, new righteous habits, godly habits, Christ-like characters are now being put on. That's the idea that's mentioned here. The, the thing I want you to see is our help flows out of this relationship with Christ we have to continue to pursue him. But I also wanted you to see in that same piece why we need to ruthlessly deal with sin. We cannot coddle sin. We cannot invite it over for dinner. We cannot treat it like a pet and expect it not to do what sin always does. It kills it destroys, it divides, 
it leaves people in shambles. That's what sin is always going to do. So the text says, make no provision for it. Uh, Don't give it an inroad into your life. Don't entertain it. Don't excuse it away. Don't try to justify it. Make no provision for the flesh. The final reason I picked these verses is I wanted you to see that jealousy and envy and their parent sin of covetousness are sins of the flesh. These are sins. It's not just a personality quirk. It's the specifically listed in the deeds of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. I want you to put these pieces together for a moment. Envy, jealousy, and covetousness are absolutely sins. They are not personality glitches. Little problems are no big deal. They are sins as of what we find in Scripture. Our path for help only comes through putting on Christ. It only comes through the overflow of Christ. Temporary suppression of sinful activities is not the same as heart transformation. God alone is the one who changes the heart. We are to make, according to this text, no provision for the flesh. We are not to fuel it. We are not to excuse it. We are not to ignore it. We are to treat the flesh and sins as though it is a robber coming into our life. If somebody breaks into your house, you don't put out snacks and act like there's nothing wrong. You go on heightened alert because somebody is coming after something valuable to you. And in this case, it's going after your heart. And we found out on week one, we are to guard our heart. We're to be vigilant about our heart with all diligence because out of the heart is going to flow the rivers of life. I wanted you to see also that we are to be fully aware that when you see these sins, they travel in packs. They don't travel alone. So what's the difference between these words? Here it is. Covetousness speaks of lusting after or longing for something with great desire. It's a generic term. It it speaks of this deep, unhealthy, sinful desire for something. It is condemned throughout Scripture, specifically over in the Ten Commandments. Covetousness is a form of idolatry found in Colossians 3.5. Coveting causes something to desire something or someone that begins to lead them away from a full-hearted, all-heart, mind, and soul pursuit of God. It is a form of idolatry. Coveting makes us think that something we don't have instead of the one we do have is going to make us happy and content. Envy wants what belongs to someone else. Envy manifests itself in resentful longing. We resent the fact that somebody has something that we want and we don't have that same thing. There's this dissatisfied longing for someone else's position or someone else's possessions or someone else's accomplishments. At the core, in envy, it's going to focus on self-love and it is often going to be manifested in anger and hatred towards somebody else. You will notice Envious people are unhappy people. Envious people are ungrateful people. Envious people are discontented people. Did you notice what just happened? Once again, sin doesn't travel alone. 
Just in that one section, envy is connected to covetousness, self-love, anger, ungratefulness, discontentment, idolatry, resentment. If God does not deal with anger, and God does not deal with envy, and God does not deal with a lack of contentment at a heart level, it is only going to morph and reappear in another form of sin. God has to be the one to address the heart. Now, another aspect of envy that needs to be addressed, and this might be harder than what I've already said, is when envy is not challenged on a personal level, it will be seen as a right on a public level. Think about that for just a moment. When envy is not challenged on a personal level, it is seen as a right on a public level. Left to itself, envy grows in the collective consciousness of a nation. How many of our policies, laws, executive orders are being written from the position of envy? People want what somebody else has. And not only do we want it, we say, I deserve it. And entitlement begins to set in. When resentful longing becomes accepted and applauded, it quickly moves to anger and violence and hatred towards other people because they have what I want. They possess what I think is mine. You say, Paul, that, that's going too far right there. I don't see how you got there. All you got to do is read the story of Naboth's vineyard and King Ahab found over in 1 Kings 21. The king looks out with envy over this incredible vineyard, wants it, offers to buy it. Naboth is not willing to sell it. It's a part of his family heritage. He gets upset. He's sulking. He goes back and talks to his evil wife, Jezebel, and she's like, why are you upset? You're the king. Do what you need to do. And a plan is now hatched in that moment to kill the man and to take it for himself. What just happened? Envy left unchecked becomes destructive and hateful for others. We have to address these things. The more society acquiesces to envious desires, the more it leads to crimes against each other and division between each other. And as James 3.16 says, disorder and every evil thing. Jealousy now is our tricky term. It's tricky because, believe it or not, jealousy can be good or bad dependent upon how it is mentioned in Scripture and what comes from it in Scripture. Now, as a point of reference, envy is never seen in a positive light in Scripture. It is always sinful over and over again. But jealousy has two parts, so let's understand each of those. As a sin, jealousy centers around rivalry and an unhealthy fear of losing what we have. So some of the effects of jealousy from that sinful side become intolerance for people, fear of unfaithfulness, our lack of trust due to suspicion. But jealousy is not always listed as a sin. In fact, you'll find it connected with how God responds, specifically in the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel. Listen to what Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5 says. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath 
are in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Did you know that's not the only time that word is used of God in Scripture? So there is a holy jealousy that stems from giving to others what is rightfully God's. Uh, The context there is making idols and worshiping idols and giving our worship to something other than to God. So God is not being jealous because others are being worshiped appropriately and he just wants what they have. Instead, it speaks of him being jealous because they are giving to others what is rightfully his. He says, I'm a jealous God. He speaks of Israel as being his chosen people, his possession. But that same terminology also comes into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul spoke of a divine jealousy for Christians in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now put those pieces together. Covetousness speaks of lusting after or longing for something with great desire. It's a generic term. Envy is the desire to have for yourself what rightfully belongs to another. Jealousy is the desire to keep for yourself what rightfully belongs to you. But listen, that form of jealousy can also spin into consuming and destructive habits. If you want a couple of ways of putting them side by side, envy manifests itself in resentment because it wants what somebody else has. Jealousy will often manifest itself in fearful dread because we fear losing what we do have. A final point of comparison might be you can envy someone else because of their spouse, but when somebody's flirting with yours, you get jealous. You see how the two terms line up right there? Okay, so here's my question. Are these three sins a big deal? Yes. It's a huge deal. In fact, covetousness is specifically forbidden in the Ten Commandments, and it is the root, the parent sin for both envy as well as jealousy. Unchecked envy can result in resentment, self-love, idolatry, ungratefulness, walking away from God so that you can meet your own needs through a means other than God. Unchecked jealousy can result in living in fear, lack of trust, controlling people, and not loving people as God commands us to love them. The covetous traits that I'm mentioning between covetousness, envy, and jealousy, the covetous traits I'm mentioning are considered the deeds of the flesh, Galatians 5, the opposite of love, 1 Corinthians 13, a symptom of pride, 1 Timothy 6, 4, a catalyst for conflict, James 3, 16, and a mark associated with unbelievers, Romans 1, 29. Yes, it's a big deal. These are sins that destroy, they divide, they lead to death. Since they are such a big deal, why would we not take them seriously? Why would we ever consider something that deadly and destructive to be respectful and okay? So what is a biblical path to freedom? You're going to notice that a lot of these same pieces will be mentioned in each of the following weeks. First, recognize sin as sin. Don't try to rename it. Don't try to excuse it. 
do not dress it up with justification. We have to learn to stop putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't matter what you say about it or how you dress it up. Sin is sin. Most of the time when we try to dress it up, it is a desire to get away from accountability and responsibility. Second, repent of sin often and quickly. When you recognize sin in your life, don't delay repentance. When the Spirit of God brings conviction, stop what you're doing and deal with it right then and there. As believers, here's the beautiful thing. Our sin debt has been paid by Jesus on the cross. All of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid in full. Sin debt has been wiped away. You are free in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But listen, it doesn't mean that on this side of eternity we won't continue to sin. But when we do, here's the beauty of that. We don't have to hide from our Heavenly Father because we've already got His forgiveness in Christ. But what we're called to do is to repent of that sin, agree with God that that is wrong and He is right, and say, God, by your grace, by your grace, would you help my life be turned from that so that I can walk in the freedom that is mine in Jesus Christ? Repent often and repent quickly. The next one. Run to Jesus. Put on Christ. Oh, maybe you've heard this phrase, everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. This is no different. If you're dealing with these issues or these sins or any type of sin, it's going to be freed by the overflow of relationship with Christ. Please hear me when I say this. I am not your hope. This church is not your hope. Your disciplines are not your hope. Jesus alone is our hope. All of our hope, all of our praise, all of our desire has to be sitting in the right place. Like the old hymn said, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Throw yourself at his mercy. Submit to his beautiful, his beautiful, his beautiful lordship of your life. And say, God, by your grace, live in and through me. Run to Jesus. And finally, remember to live with joy and gratitude. The lie that is behind this covetous spirit is if I had blank then I would be happy and fulfilled and complete. My Bible says, I am complete in Christ. I, I, I don't need anything in order to complete me apart from Jesus. I'm not waiting for a second filling. I don't need another baptism right now. I've already had two of those, by the way. You know my story. I, I, I don't need something else in order to come in. When I am a child of God, when I repented of my sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are complete in him. Remember to live with joy and gratitude. Coveting is the opposite of living with contentment and gratitude. So I want to challenge you, choose joy. Choose to be grateful for what God has already given. Instead of measuring your happiness against somebody else's blessings, stay planted in the joy that is ours in the gospel. And just as a side note, 
Stop comparing your life to the highlight reel somebody else has on social media. You do know that's not real, don't you? Like we only put the parts out there that we want people to see. Not the parts that we hate, by the way. I wasn't meaning to say this. Look on my head right here. This is, you will not find this picture right on social media. You know what that is? That's two wasp stings from yesterday. I was joking with the staff this morning. I was saying, you ever heard of somebody having a bee in their bonnet? Yesterday, I'm trimming shrubs, and I got a wasp stuck up in my hat. Okay, I'm not going to take a picture of this. Looks like I got two zits on my forehead and stick it up on social media. You have to remember, people are showing you the parts of their life they don't mind you seeing. And people are looking at that like, man, I wish I had their life. You probably do. You're just not posting it right now. Listen, remember to live with joy and gratitude. So as we close, let me just ask this. Where are you justifying respectable sin in your life right now? Where has envy, jealousy, or covetousness taken root but also taken over part of your life? Where has the Holy Spirit been prompting you for a while saying, nobody else knows, but I know. Deal with this. And you keep saying, later, later, not now. All I can say is, when God is addressing it in private, I cannot encourage you enough to deal with it in private. Our Bible still says, be sure your sin will find you out. Repent now. Repent quickly. We got a lot of Christians praying for revival to come in our country. And many times the same Christians are unwilling to repent of personal sin in their own life. Do business with God. Heavenly Father, Apart from your spirit leading us into repentance and showing needs that are there, God, it's too easy in this culture to just work the religious formulas and stay in the shadows and just not draw attention to ourselves. But God, you desire to do a complete work in our hearts. So God, I pray today that, Lord, what is clearly in your word, where you are calling your people to a life of holiness and righteousness, a life of repentance, God, may we not run from that. And even if we're going to be the only one to say, Lord, I don't know what others are going to do, but i got to deal with this myself, God, May we walk as individual believers who are desiring your fullness in our life. Lord, what we don't want to do is create a culture where we are manipulating people's feelings and trying to drum up a movement of your spirit. But God, we do believe that your spirit is strong enough and speaks loudly enough and is so personal in our lives 
The Spirit will pinpoint the areas that need to be addressed. When it happens, may we be quick to agree, quick to repent, and quick to throw ourselves upon your mercy. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. Some of our pastors and some of their wives will be down at the end of the rows. Our time of invitation is going to be open for people. There might be people in the room right now God has been working on in your life in a while and you simply want to come and pray. You might want to just turn your seat into a private altar right now and just pray where you're at. It might be that you don't even know where to begin and you want somebody to pray with you. It might be that you know you've been running from God for a long time and God is calling you to himself. Whatever it is that the Spirit of God is leading you to do, please respond to him. Let's sing.